Um, one of the stories that captivated our attention, uh, I, I'd like to just share with you real briefly as we get started, uh, was a young man by the name of Blake McCloskey. McCloskey. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. This young guy, good-looking guy, sharp, um, began to unravel in an interview a story about how he has impacted the world. Four years ago, he was 27 years old. He was on vacation in Argentina. Why? I have no idea. He's on vacation in Argentina near Buenos Aires. And he sees something going on that grabbed his attention. He saw a volunteer group take used shoes from the cities and from the people that were a bit more affluent. They would take them out to the poor kids and families and distribute the shoes. And he looked at that. Now, this is a young man who, at 27, had already started four successful companies. This is quite the young man, yeah? So he immediately, in his entrepreneurial spirit, starts locking on, and he says, wait a second. What if I went home and started a shoe company? Now, he's never doesn't know anything about shoes. He doesn't know anything about any of this stuff. He decides, I think I should start a shoe company. He said, because what I might be able to do is utilize two different things that I'm passionate about. One is business. He said, that's what I'm good at. Two is that he's always had a heart and a desire to give to those that do not have. He said, what if I started a business model that he's never seen done before, and that is I'll start a company who makes shoes, but every time one is purchased, the cost in there makes another pair that I can give away. It's a two-for-one deal every time. So he goes back to America, and he starts working on this business model. Um, he starts making shoes, and it's called the Tom's Shoe Company. Anybody heard of Tom's? All right, a whole bunch of you. Yeah, you see all the hands in the air? You're going to find out why here in a moment. So this young guy at 27 starts making shoes, doesn't know how to do it, figures it out. They're canvas shoes. They're kind of funky looking. So he ends up creating these shoes. They're kind of cool. And every time somebody would buy one, he would set one aside to be handed out. Now, to him, it was merely a business model that allowed him to do something that was exciting. His view was that he couldn't wait to make a lot of money in business because he dreamed that when he retired, he would spend his retirement years giving. So he always wanted to be successful to give and do missions work in retirement. But all of a sudden he thought, wait a second, what if I could merge those now as a young man and do it now? Well, as he's gathering all these shoes together, it was still just a business idea until eight months later. Eight months later, he went to go do the first shoe drop. Now, a shoe drop is when you distribute the shoes that you've been holding aside. He grabs his friends, his family, and they all go to Argentina. They get off the plane and they go into the villages and start putting shoes on children. It was no longer a business. His heart caught fire and he said, this is not about business anymore. 
This is about changing lives. He had a woman come up to him who she was speaking the local dialect that he did not know. She was crying and he didn't know if he had done something wrong. He grabs the translator and he said, have I done something wrong? She said, no, I'm happy. You see, I have three sons and they have always, especially this last year, they just share one pair of shoes. And their school does not allow them to attend without shoes on. So they alternate days. So the oldest one goes to school on Monday. The next one takes the pair of shoes and goes on Tuesday. The third one goes on Wednesday. Then the first oldest one gets to go back on Thursday. Now they can all go to school every day. It wasn't a business anymore. He got so excited about what was going on, he continued to pour in all the money that he had into this company. Now, he was currently running a business. He shut that down, took, sold it, took all the money, invested it in Tom's shoes. He was losing money at this point, so he had to get it boosted back up. But then he decides to start spreading the word and found out that everyone that he was selling to was starting to spread the word as well. He started doing some stuff on YouTube which is an internet uh, company. And people started hearing about this. Let's fast forward to what happened. Last April, he launched a day without shoes. 250,000 people took part in not wearing shoes all day. Churches, Hollywood, law firms, all went without shoes. So they could have people ask them, why aren't you wearing shoes? And they would draw attention to the poverty throughout the world. Four years later, he has partnered with Microsoft, who has given millions and millions of free dollars in advertising online. It went viral all over the internet and everybody heard about it. You can watch on David Letterman, Demi Moore is talking about it. The Jonas Brothers all have them. They're all talking about it. And it's exploding all throughout Hollywood. To date, this now 31-year-old man, single, ladies, has given 600,000 pairs of shoes to people who need it. That doesn't happen without God. Does God get praise for that? Amen. So how cool is it when God taps you on the shoulder and does something like that? I mean, where you're, you're not only super successful in what you do, you're not only passionate in what you do, but everyone knows you're a hero. That's pretty awesome. How rare is it that law firms, churches, and Hollywood agree on anything? Yeah? This is an incredible movement by which the world and the church unite together to change the world. That's pretty awesome. But what happens when God taps you on the shoulder and says that you're about to lead change and everyone's going to hate your guts? That's a whole different ballgame. It's cool to be Blake. It's tough to be Josiah. The story we are about to read 
is in the Bibles with you. Please take those out. If you do not have one, raise your hand. Our team is waiting to bring one to you. I'll give you the page number. We will be turning into three different books of the Bible. So you're going to need a Bible to track with us. I will make sure that you have a little bit of help on where to go. Also, take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. I entitled today's message, Serving for Change, and we are in part two of our four-part series called the... Super Servant Series. Come on. Come on. It's even written on your page. All right. I cannot keep naming series stupid things if you won't remember them. I'm going to have to start doing intelligent things, and that's not fun for anyone. All right. So if I'm going to do stupid things, you have to help me out on this. All right. It's the second part in the Super Servant series, and we're talking about Josiah. What if God taps you on the shoulder and says you're going to lead change by which everyone in the nation thinks that you're not only an idiot, but you're a bad guy? Are you willing to follow God when it costs you popularity? The fill in the blank in front of you, I want to echo down to your core. It is this, are you willing to serve If it costs you friends, you see, a lot of us will give money and resources for the sake of God, but we hold our friends in a separate category. It doesn't matter how old you are. Friends matter. Friends are friends for a reason. They are your comfort. They are the backup. They are the ones that reaffirm for you that you're okay. What if what you do causes them to not like you? What if it is unpopular? What if God wants you to lead something that's going to steal from them their very safety and security because it's wrong? Are you willing to be the unpopular one? Josiah was, and he did it at a very, very young age. Listen, whenever we dive into these stories, I've got to give you a little background. Otherwise, it really doesn't matter. It certainly doesn't have the impact or the power that it should. Our story starts 120 years after the monarchy. Uh, This is basically how it goes. Let's jump back in Israel's history. The first major king of Israel. His name was Saul. He reigned for 40 years. After him was who? King David, the greatest king of all Israel. He reigns about 40 years. He had a son that took over the throne. His name was Solomon, the smartest guy ever. He was the guy that wrote the book of Proverbs, stuff like that. So we have Saul, David, and Solomon, each reigning 40 years, 40 times three. We now have 120 years of monarchy. After Solomon finishes, things hit the fan. The nation splits. There's a mighty schism. Ten of the twelve nations hold tight together. They are now known as the north. It's versus the south. The south are two nations. Judah, Benjamin. They unite together and they have two separate kingdoms with two separate kings. As you read through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you start watching these kings shift. And you're like, wait, are we talking about the north? Are we talking about the south? Man, you need like a cheat sheet next to you, right? It's hard to follow. 
So after all this monarchy, everything breaks apart and everything starts to erode. The north, they start out horribly and they just basically are horrible for a really long time. Now eventually God wipes them out. They end up getting destroyed earlier than the south. The south is not all that much better, although their kings kind of, if you go through the north, it's Bad, 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 right? The north, uh, the south goes bad, good, good, bad, 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 good, good, bad. And you're like, oh, you don't care anymore. The north lasts about 200 years, south lasts about 300 years. But they broke and they hated each other. They fought each other. Well, Josiah is a south guy. And two books primarily tell his story. Chronicles and Kings. Now, you would think as you read through them, because they parallel each other so much, why are there two of them? Maybe we could even ask the same thing about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why are we all having four guys tell the same story? It's from different perspectives. But here's how you can kind of tell them apart. Kings covers 400 years from Solomon through the breakup of the nation until they're all wiped out from glory to ruin. That's Kings. Chronicles says, all right, at this point, we're in total ruin. How did we get here? They take it from Adam, quickly scoop through, slow down at David and start telling the story of how they fell apart. So they track each other. Side by side. Josiah's story is told in both. You will literally see them tell different facts. And it almost feels like they argue with each other. But they don't. They just give different facts. So we're going to bounce back and forth. So our story begins, though Josiah is in the south, our story begins with a northern king. A really, really bad guy. The first king by the name of Jeroboam. I'm going to try to avoid a lot of these names because they're irritating. But we've got to talk about this guy. Jeroboam, the first guy in the north, started everything off on the bad foot. What he did was say, all right, God has told me through a prophet that if I do things God's way, he will give me ten northern nations. He thinks that's a brilliant plan. He leads a rebellion against Solomon Solomon goes to attack him. He hides in Egypt till Solomon dies. Comes back out and starts to lead the north. He does not do it God's way. As a matter of fact, he starts to turn the nation pagan. And he does it for one particular reason. There is a key city in the south that kind of has the corner market on God. What's that city? Jerusalem. All right, so if you're ever talking about Israel and you think of the big dog city, what is it? It's always Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's not in his area. It's in the south. He doesn't want people going south. And he decides they have that big God thing going on. So I have to adjust it and do something different so we can be independent. So he comes up with the idea to start worshiping cows. I don't know what everyone's attraction to cows are in the Bible. Remember the golden calf incident? Why are we always with cows? In my opinion, 
If you're going to worship an animal, worship a cool one. Don't worship a lame one. It's a cow. Now, I get it. It's an agricultural society, and there's fertility, and there's crops and herds. I get all that. But cows are cows. Don't worship a cow. Worship like a lion. But don't worship a cow. Anyway, we're going back to this. So the king in the north decides to lead the whole nation into calf worship. As a matter of fact, as long as the north is around, not one of the kings deviates from that. And they end up going down because of it. All because of one guy. He starts leading the whole nation away from God. Ticks God off to such a massive degree that God sends in a prophet to speak doom on this man. And that is where we pick up our story. Would you turn with me to 1 Kings? 1 Kings chapter 13, page 249, and the Bible's handed to you. 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 1. Sorry for the long intro, but you're not going to understand the story until we get that out. If you're a history buff, that was awesome. If you're not, you will never get that time back. 1 Kings 13.1, page 249. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about this like a movie trailer. This is awesome. This is a preview, okay? So look at this. and You kind of picture it in your mind. I want it to come alive to you. It says this, and we're going to talk about Jeroboam, that bad northern guy, yeah? It says this, by the word of the Lord, a man of God, who we have no idea who that is, a man of God came from the south to the north. As Jeroboam, that northern king, was standing by the altar to make an offering in a pagan way. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, the prophet did. Oh, altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, on the altar, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings there. And human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar itself will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so he couldn't even pull it back in. Also, the altar was split apart. Its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. That's awesome. I love this story. Bad for him. Good for me. Very interesting. The guy rolls up and says, because of the wickedness you are launching upon this nation, God will bring about renewal through a man by the name of Josiah who will come. And this altar will have human bones of the very priests who are now ministering at it in pagan ways. And to show you that it's right, this altar will split in two right in front of you. Then the king shouts back, sees him, his hand shrivels up. He can't bring it back in, right? It's just powerful. God is ticked off. His hand gets fixed later on. Just to let you know, in case you're wondering the other side of the story. But what did you just hear? A man named what will be born? Josiah. This is 300 years before he's born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
the plans and purposes that you have for us that were written before the dawn of time are coming about right in front of our eyes. We pray, Lord, that we would work in concert with your purposes. That we would do the stuff you asked us to do. That, Lord, as you whisper deep within our souls, we would take hold of those, light them on fire by your Holy Spirit, that we might be able to carry them out and do the things that change the world. Oh, God, give us the courage and the vision to make your kingdom advance on your behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 300 year prophecy that a man would be born with the exact name and do the exact things that he said is it possible oh it happened the story goes on to explain later in second kings now 300 years later a young man is born into a royal line his dad was king his grandfather was king And his grandfather, whose name was Manasseh, was a terrible, terrible man. As a matter of fact, the more I talk, the more you're going to realize Josiah came from garbage. His whole history, his whole lineage, his whole family tree, full of garbage. One man after another doing wicked and evil in the eyes of God. I want you to consider your background as we talk about his for a moment. King Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather, was the longest reigning southern king ever. He reigned 55 years. And it says he did so much wickedness that no one could top it. Now what's intriguing is what he did. Not only did he lead the nation into pagan religion and bowing down to false gods, like Baal and Asherah, who we'll talk about in a moment, But it also says he filled Jerusalem end to end with innocent blood. I don't even know what that means, but it's the whole reason why God doesn't let it go. It says that God even spoke to Manasseh and his people during his reign, but they wouldn't listen. But it is four specific things that he did that are shocking to me. Four things that no Jewish king would ever dream of doing. And it is these. The first one is that he personally practiced witchcraft and sorcery himself and consulted mediums to find out the future. Number two, he burned his own sons alive to the god Molech. I don't know if you know anything about this, but this god Molech was worshipped by child sacrifice. And what they would do is they'd go to these statues, these altars of Molech that stand like this, and they have their arms outstretched in a 90 degree fashion with a long plate, a stone that would go across it. Underneath, by where the feet would be, they would put a fire, and they would heat the plate up to extreme degrees, and they would take their newborn children and place them on the plate to sizzle and burn alive. That was the act of worship. The king of Judah is doing this. Not one son, plural sons. This is God's nation. And that's what their leader's doing. That's Josiah's grandfather. Number three, 
He sets up altars to pagan gods in the temple. God's house. Let's clear out the church. Let's put up a whole bunch of pagan stuff right here and turn it into a pagan worship center. Really? The fourth one we cannot be sure of. It's merely tradition. But tradition says that he personally oversaw the great prophet Isaiah being sawn in two. This is what Kings and Chronicles tells us. Now, what's intriguing is that if you read the King story, he was bad when he started, he was bad when he ended. If you read Chronicles, you get a different perspective. Chronicles said that something happened at the end of his life that turned him around. Chronicles goes to say that he was so wicked, God got really irritated, had the Assyrian Empire come in personally, attack him, capture him, and take him back. They put a ring through his nose. Now, a lot of people do that on purpose. Now, someone did this to him. They put a ring through his nose and a chain, and they would lead him about by the chain. As a slave, he was so humiliated, so afraid, so messed up, that it made him re-rack and consider what type of man he was. He realized that God had brought judgment upon him. And even there, after doing all the wicked that he did, there in a prison cell, he cried out to God and said, I'm sorry. And God said, you're forgiven. And restored him back to power. Do we serve a merciful God? Even a, God, a man that did that. When he was taken out, his son succeeded him in the throne. That's Josiah's dad. He reigned for two years. Nothing but wickedness. That's Josiah's lineage. It's intriguing because I don't know where Josiah got any good influence. He had nothing around him, no support. His family was all pagan. And yet he is going to be extraordinary. How does that happen? Oh, I don't know, God. I want you to consider right now this fact, and I want you to burn this in your mind. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your dad did. It doesn't matter what your family has always done. It does not matter what generations you come from. It matters who you serve right now. If you are a child of God, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and all things have become new. Don't you ever allow generational sin to bind you down. Don't ever allow my family has always been this way to influence you and affect you. You are new. You are a child of God. You can be anything he makes you into being. Your past means nothing to God. Your present means everything. And your future is in his hands. Amen? Second Chronicles 34 verse 1. We pick up the story, page 331. Second Chronicles, if you are in Kings, you've got to go to the right. First, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. By the way, there is no such thing in Hebrew as first and second. 
Kings or Chronicles. They're just one book. They were only broken up when they translated it to Greek because they couldn't fit them on the scrolls. It's the only reason why. They're just one book. As a side note. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1, page 331, is where we pick up the story of the man that we are about to study. Check this out. All there? Everybody there? You follow along with me, right? I'm going to ask you a couple questions along the way. You actually verbally respond. Here we go. Amen. Josiah was how old when he became king? Eight years old. Wow. That was weird. That was weird. It's like everybody woke up and said something. That was cool. All right. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Pause. Consider your eight-year-old right now. Fit to run a nation. Amazing. Right? Probably fit to run California right now. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. That's eight to 39. I'm 38. He only reigned a little bit older than me. That was it. So when we think about all the things that he did, none of it came from a man older than me. I want you to put this into real perspective. He started at eight years old. Don't ever underestimate children. Don't ever relegate them to the back room. For out of the mouth of babes, they'll tell you what's up. They will tell you what God is like. They will tell you what can really happen. They have the faith we have worked so hard to erode from our lives. The children end up leading the nation. The young people advance forward. While we are too locked up in this could never happen. In this church, the only reason we are separate is that they may be trained according to where they're at. It has nothing to do with second class citizens. You walk into this church, how much space is for adults and how much is for kids? We have a million children. And we design accordingly. Are they precious to us? They are our future. He was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, that makes him how old? 16. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. That's twice it's mentioned his father's name is David. That's not his dad's name. What's his dad's name? Ammon. Why do they keep saying his dad's name is David? Because it really doesn't matter who his bio dad is, does it? Never has. It matters who you follow. When God looks at this young man, he scribbles it out and goes back in the chain to who the big dog was that really loved him. And he says, you're a lot like that guy. I know who your dad is. You know who your dad is. But ultimately, your dad is God. And I hope you look a lot like him. Because when I see you, I don't see your earthly father. I see your heavenly father. 
And that makes all the difference. In his 12th year, that makes him how old? 20. Ooh, we're getting quieter. See, once you insert math, everyone's like, oh, what if I yell out the wrong answer, right? 21! Oh, shoot. Okay. In his 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places. Asherah poles, carved idols, cast images. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals, false gods, were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them. Smashed the Asherah poles, the idols, and the images. These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who'd sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars and he purged Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he's how old? 26. To purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, son of a bunch of other people, to repair the temple of the Lord his God. Verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord, and he gave it to Shaphan. Shaphan took the book to the king, verse 18. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. And he gave these orders, verse 21. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. For great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Eight-year-old, 16-year-old, 20-year-old, 26-year-old. What an amazing young man. He is about to lead at this point the greatest reformation that will ever hit Israel. At 26. He was already pursuing God. He was already leading to the cleansing. And I don't even know how. Because he didn't find the Bible until he was 26. What did he find? It's likely he found the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He has this read in his presence, all of it, in one sitting. What was his reaction? He tore his robes in mourning. Oh my gosh, no matter what I've done, we are so in trouble. This isn't right. This nation, we're not right. We've got to do something and do it now. All the reformation that I've done, it's not enough. Everything's got to go up. Everything's got to change. We have to return our hearts to God. What's your reaction when you read the Bible? Isn't it usually, well, this is pretty complicated. The word of God meant something to him. And I don't know why. Because I don't see any good influence in his life. God rescued him out of his place, out of his family. Maybe his mom was the only one that was solid. We don't know. God rescued him from this garbage and made this gold man 
And he began to lead this reformation. It's interesting, the first thing he did, we find in 2 Kings 23. Turn with me there, bounce back to the left. 2 Kings 23, 1. Page 279. While you're turning there, let me just give you a little background. You're going to hear the phrase Baal and Asherah a lot. That was a god and goddess of the land. Ones that really irritated God that were really a big deal to the Jewish people. Baal means master, which you're not supposed to call anybody master. And it's the son of Dagon, Hadad, the storm god, a nature god. And he was called the king of all gods. Well, that's going to irritate our Lord. Uh, Asherah was his mistress. She was a mother goddess, a goddess of the seas. All right, these two are big problems and you would worship them by making these big images. For Asherah, you would make these huge wooden poles, like a totem pole in her honor. You're going to hear that a lot. The first thing that he does before he leads massive reformation in his nation is this. 2 Kings 23, 1, page 279. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and he went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, probably the whole Mosaic law, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar ceremonially and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all his heart and with all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. He started to lead a nation. What did he do? First, he cleaned the temple out. The Bible goes on to say he got rid of all the pagan priests around Jerusalem. He took the Asherah pole out of the temple of God, burned it, crushed it to powder, and sprinkled it over the graves to desecrate it. He tore down housing at the temple for male shrine prostitutes. They all lived at the church in God's house. And got rid of all the housing for the women that would weave for goddesses and gods got them out of there he got rid of all the horses and chariots that were kept at the temple for the sun god he pulled down and smashed all the pagan altars on the roof of god's house and in the temple courts throwing the rubble outside the cities then he went out in the surrounding areas and desecrated all the high places broke down the shrines of the gates desecrated the area of molech that horrible child sacrifice god he then desecrated Solomon's pagan high places by smashing the sacred stones, cutting down the Asherah poles, and he covered all the sites with human bones. And then he burned human bones on the altar at Bethel to defile it, according to the prophecy said 300 years prior. We look at that and we go, yeah, man, what an amazing man. Let me tell you how I think the nation reacted. Picture right now what happened with Paul at Ephesus. You remember? It's like Acts, maybe chapter 18. Paul goes in and leads this massive revival in a city named Ephesus. And in reaction, when everybody got saved, they took all their gods and goddesses that they were worshiping and they went and burned them. And we all go, yay! All the rest of the people, the majority of the people that didn't buy into that, led a riot. 
The riot was so intense, they wouldn't even let Paul get near the amphitheater. His two buddies were drawn in and grabbed, and had a guy not stopped it, both of them would have been killed. And they shouted hour after hour after hour, Paul ruined everything, great are our gods. Now you'll get a picture of what it was like for him to lead this reformation. You don't see it in the story. Let me make it practical. Let's say someone came into power and they said, there is wickedness being done in my estimation. And he goes down and for whatever reason, walks into Hollywood and burns the whole place down. Levels it. Do you know how much money he just lost for those people? Do you realize the economy he just disrupted? Do you understand the lives that everyone's now out of a job? Do you understand he took the very fabric of our society, entertainment, and shut it down? It radiates out into the world. Everybody knows Hollywood. Everybody knows what is being produced. Everybody uses that as their escapism. It's a way of life. It's the magazines they buy. It's the clothes that they wear. All of it demolished and burned overnight. How popular is that guy? That's Josiah. Oh, it looks like everybody was on his team. I don't think so. I think that when a king says, we're going to do it this way, I think you do it. But I don't think your heart is there. I think everyone hated him. And I think he was the least popular guy ever. I think his friends were embarrassed. I think that they all had to say, hey man, I don't even know that guy. When he eroded their culture, when he ripped away everything that everybody loved to do. When he tore down all the stuff, they poured all their money into building. All the Asherah poles, all the idols, all the gold, everything is smashed and melted and ground into powder and thrown outside the city. He demolished their lives for the sake of God. What if that was your call? You got, God would never call me to do something that dramatic. Maybe. What if God asked you to stand for something and you're a mom and all the other moms don't do it like that? And you see and know it's wrong. And you stand for Jesus. And they all distance themselves from you. You going to do that? Josiah didn't just remove stuff. He put new stuff in. He led the nation in its first Passover celebration since the time of the judges. Hundreds and hundreds of years before. Remember what Passover stands for? God was bringing judgment. And they said, I trust in the Lord to save me. And they put blood on their mantle. And the angel of death passed over that house in an act of mercy. And that, of course, is a symbolic of what? Jesus and the cross. That when God's judgment comes upon the world, he passes over us. Because Jesus' blood is written on the door frames of our heart. He leads the nation in the largest and the first in a really long time. Out of his own pocket, he takes 30,000 sheep and goats to sacrifice for a big party for God. 
He replaces all the bad priests with good guys and starts new worship. He puts the Ark of the Covenant back in the temple and calls it God's house. Then, in a really weird twist of fate, he goes out to war. God warns him through another guy to say, I don't think you should do this. He does it anyway, and he's killed by a random arrow. And that was God's way of fulfilling and saying, I don't want you to see what's about to happen. Within 25 years, three of his sons go on the throne, one grandson, and Israel is destroyed. His sons are all wicked. His grandson, wicked. He was the only light. And all his change, gone by the next king. Does that mean he's a failure? Or did he do what God asked him to do? God did not do it to look for results. God prophesied years earlier that it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to get wiped out. Oh, it was coming. So why did he ask Josiah to do it? So that he would be glorified? And guess what he whispered in Josiah's ear, in my opinion, on the day he died? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come here. I need you to hang out with me for a second. I have some work to do. And he disappeared from this life. It's great to lead reform that everybody buys into. But wow, is it hard to lead change when everyone hates you.